Strategic Healthcare Partners, founded by principals John Crew and Mike Scribner, operates from offices in Savannah and Atlanta. Our diverse team prioritizes clients, ensuring we fully understand their needs. As your business partner, we are an extension of your professional identity. SHP tailors services to your individual needs, offering flexible pricing structures. From IPA management to financial analysis, we're here to empower your organization. Visit shpllc.com for details. Welcome to Beyond the Stethoscope, Vital Conversations with SHP. I'm your host, Jason Crosby. Today, I'm joined with SHP Principal Mike Scribner as we wrap up our interview with our guest, Damian Scott. If you recall, Damian is the CEO of Emanuel Medical Center in Swainsboro, Georgia. In today's conversation, we talk about not only has healthcare changed because of COVID, but the culture around healthcare has rapidly changed as well. Are you ready for this Vital Conversation? You had spoken earlier about one of the other threats to rural hospitals that can be an aging physician population. Um, can you speak to kind of your situation and and kind of what you're doing to mitigate any risk around that? I've heard several employees, like leaders, managers say that one of the challenges they have is the generational difference between their older employees and their younger employees. And this is definitely true on our physicians. So there's so much here, Mike. So an older physician, when they came into the role, they were offered a salary. And that salary, by the way, included call. And it also included going and checking on your patients in the hospital. So it used to be a primary care would get calls through the night. They'd get up in the morning. They'd go talk. Uh, round on their patients, they'd go to the clinic, they'd see patients all day, they'd go by the hospital at night, and then they'd get calls all night. Well, today's physician that's coming out, the modern physician, they don't want that. They would like to have some more work-life balance, and I don't, bl- I don't blame them. I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do that in my life as well, but the problem is, is that now that because of that, that, that if they do call at night, they want some increased compensation for it. We also have specialized. So now you have outpatient primary care and you have a hospitalist. So now you're paying two physicians for what we used to pay one. And they don't want to work the 24-7. They want to have a day person and a night person. So as a result, what's happened is that we have the older physicians feel like, well, these younger ones, they can't cut it. And the younger ones are like, I don't want to do that. And the CEOs are like, how am I going to pay for this? Because now everything's costing so much more. So although I I, I understand what the younger physicians are wanting, I don't want to work 24-7. Um, it does come with an increased cost. And then also, too, we're seeing this in all kinds of positions within healthcare. But it's costing 30 to 40% more now to have to hire a physician. And uh, that's a problem. That's a real problem. And, it, and I feel like the state's trying to do some things to help it. I, I, I'm a big fan of Mercer Medical School. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of the program that they're putting in place that's that's uh, uh, directing people into rural areas after they finish. I think that's going to be a real big help. MCG is doing the same thing. 
Um, both of those are great programs that will make it easier to recruit physicians back to a rural area. But it doesn't matter if it's easy if we can't afford it. And um, I've learned a little bit about uh, the PA and Nurse Practitioner Practice Acts in Georgia. Just do a quick Google and you'll find that we're, the, we're some of the most strict practice acts. Um, whereas like states like Washington and New Mexico are probably some of the most liberal practice acts. And the reason why, especially New Mexico did that, is because they wanted to put nurse practitioners in a rural area so that there could be access to healthcare. And I think the state needs to really look at what do we need to change within the practice acts to make it so that nurse practitioners, especially in a rural area, could have a little bit more autonomy um, so that there is access to care. And I can hear the physicians right now, well, that's not good care. You know, it's got to have a physician involvement. And I, you know what, I, I agree with you. But having no provider, I mean, having a nurse practitioner in there is certainly far superior to having no provider if, if you can't afford the physician. So I think there's got to be a solution um, that 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 is made where we have a little bit more uh, autonomy for nurse practitioners and PAs. You know, Damon, uh, keep going on that path, if you will. So you touched on it a little bit on the on the mid-level side. You know, as you talk to other uh, hospital CEOs or really in industry that is post a COVID world, what other staff you know, challenges have you been facing and what other maybe creative solutions or other culture type initiatives would you say has helped with those sort of staffing challenges in this post COVID world? We're talking about physicians, but the salary pressures on every position have definitely been there. Um, we made a decision early on that ended up paying off for us, and and I, I'm probably going to step on some toes here, but we decided to not utilize travel agency, and um, we did everything in our power. The problem is once you start using travel agency, you can't stop. It's very hard to stop, and um. And it, it creates an environment, I think, where you've got your local skilled population is irritable because they know you're paying that person sitting next to them who's not totally engaged with the organization. You're paying them a lot more. We we tried really hard to not do that. And then how did we how did we accomplish that? We decided, well, we, we will do some one time and short term things. And we defined it early on very clearly because it's really easy for this stuff to get out of hand hey, we're going to pay you this amount and we're going to pay you this instead of using travelers and we can't do this forever. So, you know, we, we understand human nature is to get used to that and, and, and not want to give it up. But this is just a short term. We can't afford it forever, but we can afford it for a little bit. And so we, we were able to um, go through COVID and in a, and in a post-COVID world where we didn't really rely on a travel agency for any of our positions. The other thing, and, and we didn't really have any control over this, Jason, but we're very fortunate. Um, right across the street from me is Southeastern Tech, and Southeastern Tech has a nursing program, and I have all of their students. Um, actually, they have a lab tech, nursing tech, and I have all of their students in my building almost every day. The president told me, Larry Calhoun told me yesterday, he said they place 100% of their graduates. But you know what the problem is? Not enough people go to tech school. Not enough, to, not enough in the feeder system there. You know what? You can have a really great job. Go over there, 
in two years, you can be a lab tech. That is a great job. If you're a sciencey kind of person, like looking in microscopes, running machines, you can have a really great job. And that's just the floor. Nursing, lab tech, MA on the physician practice side, those are good open ways to get your foot in the door in the hospital. And we also, we started offering scholarships to our employees. Um, we do five to eight a semester and we left it wide open. I thought this was going to be a good idea. Leave it wide open so that, you know, maybe even in the engineering department, somebody wants to get a plumbing certificate or something. So we left it wide open, but we left it so open that nobody applied. So we had to like go back and say, OK, look, these are the things that we're looking for. If this interests you to go back to school, we'll give you a scholarship. That I think has helped in terms of uh, retention. Uh, because it, it it helps the employees see, look, okay, the the hospital really values me. They want to see me grow in my career. And we've had, you know, coding. We've had people apply for coding certificates. Um, we've we've provided scholarships for that as well. So we've touched a lot on culture, staffing, on the, some on the clinician side. Of right field here, payer involvement in the environment and the payer landscape continues to just evolve. It's evolved throughout COVID, post-COVID. How has that sort of impact your your thinking now, but also thinking forward as you take EMC to that next level? How would you say that landscape has has affected your thinking strategically? One, you have to know your payers. I feel like I have the job. I'm I am the spokesman uh, for Emanuel Medical Center, and when you take that role really seriously, then that means you're getting in there and telling your payers your story and um this is where our partnership has come in really i think very valuable um you guys help me provide some technical uh data but i'm the one in there um rolling up my sleeves and telling them hey this is not fair and this is why it's not fair and and you know in the, in our case look you're saying you value quality and we're a five-star hospital but you're not compensating me in a way that is fair and so we, I think that in, in terms of the payer relationships, you've got to be the one to say that story. But also you have to be, I think, have a relationship with them as much as you're able to as well. So that way, when there is an issue, sometimes uh, even a software issue happens and you're having a bunch of claims rejected, you need to be able to know, okay, I need to call up a... Um, a payer and I know so and so over at the at their um, at that office or that shop. Let me call them and see if I can make this right. I can't tell you how many times I've been able to solve a problem because of a relationship that I had uh, with somebody on the payer side um, that that you've been able to get it done. And so I think you know one is go out and tell your story. Another is have relationships with them. And, and recognize, too, that they're, you know, a lot of times they're trying to meet their company's objectives and goals. And sometimes that aligns with ours. And when we can't align, great. And when we differ, we just have to get in and negotiate on that. Um, all of the payers right now are talking about quality. And so, as I mentioned earlier, you know, that's a good way to start a conversation with them, because if they're saying, hey, they want quality for their members and I want quality for my community. Well, how can we come together? where they win and we win, especially on the managed care. The reason why that they're paying out um, quality incentives is because they're getting quality incentives 
for how we do with our members. So there's definitely been some alignment for us with with those uh, Medicare payers. I, I guess just kind of sum up organizationally, or maybe answer this for you personally. How do you define success? Forget just the financial bottom line, but how do you define success? Man, I'm so glad you asked that. So um, you you know the turnover for hospital CEOs is like fast. It turns over. Uh, I think the average time is two to three years. The rule is, is probably no better. So if a board is looking for a CEO and, and you're measuring success based on the bottom line, chances are you're going to have to keep looking for a CEO every year <laughs> uh, because it's really hard to be, if, if that's your only measurement of success, it's going to be really hard for almost every rural hospital like mine to, to be financially successful year after year. I, I wish it could be, but the, the reality is you're going to have to define it much more than just the bottom line. Here's, here's how I think that success should be defined. Are we providing high quality care to our community? Um, and, and there's lots of ways that we can measure that. The CMS five star is one of them, but there's other ways too. Are, are we, when we look at um, the other quality measures that the other payers do, uh, are we hearing good feedback from the community? Are we hearing good feedback from the, the uh, elected representation within the community? And uh, are we are we hearing good feedback from individual patients? Um, and I think too, like, are your outcomes good? You know, so um, you know, uh, sepsis is a good one. You know, are 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 you are you actually saving lives when you treat people with sepsis? Are you are you getting people who show up to your ER with chest pain? Are you getting them to a cath lab in a timely manner? And so. Um, I think that's one way that you uh, can measure success. Another is, Mike, is is am I providing good jobs for this community? Um, am I am I providing good care for this community? Am I providing good jobs for this community? And then another one is, am I providing services that this community wouldn't have otherwise? So one one that we subsidize heavily is. You, you know that we closed our labor and delivery in 2015. Since then, I've aspired to have outpatient OBGYN services. Uh, I had it one day a week for several years, then I got to two days a week, and then gradually now, starting this year, we're five days a week, I can offer that service. How did we do that? We grew our own nurse practitioner. So one of those ladies that had worked, uh, Denise Peebles, that had worked in the um, labor and delivery, she just kept going to school until she's a nurse practitioner. And so now we can offer that five days a week. And the reason I say that's a, a measurement of success is that we are now being able to provide a service to a community that's a high, high need and high, high value. And we're being able to do that. And and, and it comes at a cost. Um, but it but it is one that that is of great value. And I think the last one is, is that how do you define value is that we're still here. I mean, you know, if if you're still surviving, then you, then you're doing something right. And and I think, unfortunately, boards typically are made up. I've I've got a really great balanced board, but when you have a board that's really super focused on just the financial aspect of it, everybody's going to be frustrated. It's important. 
absolutely important. We've got to address it, but it can't be the only thing we address. Yeah. I could talk about that for a long time. I know. <laughs> but it but it's so true because um you just look you just look around the state. You've seen it for the last 10 years. You know, if you got a guy who can't have a winning program in a year and he's gone, well, too bad because guess what's gonna happen? You're gonna hire the next person. They're not gonna have a winning program either because the the um it's really hard to win financially when you have a payer mix like what Emmanuel has. Can it be done? Yeah, we've 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 figured out some some years, some months, we've figured out how to do it. But then you got to go back. Also, part of winning's got to be, hey, I'm going to go out and lobby for this subsidy or this um, better payer rate, or I, I'm going to go out, uh, as we talked about on a previous call, I'm going to go out and try to to convince those people who are leaving my community that I have the best possible care locally. So please stay put. Yeah, and I know a lot of I know a lot of um, I know a lot of examples of administrators who can do the two year flip. It's an entirely different game to be there for nine years and be able to kind of sustain that. Yes, it's up down and financially, but there's just there's a lot of turnaround artists, different skill set entirely for it to be sustainable. Well, I, you know, I, I tried to mention this before, but, you know, I've, I've got some really, really great people around me. And um, I try to think sometimes when you've been at a place for nine years, you, you have these thoughts like, well, have I done anything? Um, there's a handful of things that I'm that I'm, you know, super proud of, probably the biggest of which is I have a team that I genuinely believe that if if something were to happen to me they would be able to take it and run with it. I feel really good about that. And, and, and another, and this, this may sound so corny, but you know, our building was built in 1952. Um, we put the first replacement roof on it uh, a year and a half ago. And um, that just buys whoever's, whoever follows me at least sometime uh, that they not have to worry about the roof. And um, you know, I, I, uh, we we're very our debt right now is really low. If you look at like if you know in in an MBA class that would really concern people because they think oh you got to leverage and do all that kind of stuff. But I think in a rural hospital it's different. Uh, it, it, as much as possible you want to try to avoid it because you really don't know what the next month next year holds uh, unless there's an absolutely clear ROI on what you're borrowing. I just think it's a dangerous move. Damon, that's uh, some great insight, great input. Uh, it's been a fantastic interview. Really appreciate all the specifics and, and background information you've given us. There's no question we need to have you back again and, and have another session where we can pick your brain. And appreciate all the success that you've had with the facility and applaud you and the community there. It sounds like a great team, and we, we really thank you for your time. Well, thank you, guys. I, I appreciate it. I probably over over talked on some of those but you know uh you kind of pull the string and i'm gonna go so um, <laughs> um, you know it, it it sometimes in a party or something somebody asks me about like what do you think about this in healthcare and then my wife's like oh no <laughs> <laughs> um but you know it's important stuff it it, yeah. it, it really is I, I i can't think I, I feel like it's probably top three important things that a community needs to be talking about and um and and you know
people can tell if you really legitimately care about it. Uh, they can tell that pretty easily. And um, we got some great rural hospital CEOs out there. We right. really do. We really do. These are people that almost all of them are a non-traditional model like mine uh, that didn't just go straight, you know, into healthcare admin. admin. They, they, they were in the trenches fighting and then earned that spot. So you got the passion too, and we we do appreciate it. So uh, with that, we want to thank our listeners for today's episode. We'll have the show notes and other background information for Damien. Appreciate his time, and thanks to Mike as well for joining us today. You've been listening to Beyond the Stethoscope, Bottle Conversations with SHP. This has been a production of Strategic Healthcare Partners. Your hosts are Jason Crosby and me, Aaron C. Higgins. This episode was produced and edited by Nyla Weed. Our social media content producer is Jeremy Miller. The transcribers Heather McKnight and our executive producers are Mike Scribner and John Curry. For more information about SHP, the services we offer, including the back library of episodes, episode transcripts, links to resources that we discussed, and much more, please visit our website at shpllc.com slash podcasts. Thank you for listening. Analytics, lacking the tandem of actionable reporting with expert analysis, not confident in the knowledge of your reporting system? SHP's expert analysts transform data from your EMR system into actionable insights. Understand your facility's performance, control outcomes, and enhance patient experience. As payment models shift to value-based care, our guidance can improve your bottom line. Visit shpllc.com for details.